0: Welcome to Unlocking Innovation, a podcast from EX3 Labs in 1871. We'll be talking to leaders in innovation about what keeps them ahead of the curve in today's atmosphere of rapid change and how they cultivate a culture of innovation within their organizations. I'm your host, Adam Wisniewski. Welcome to another episode of Unlocking Innovation. Today's guest is Dr. Naurav Shah. You may recognize Dr. Shah if you listen to season one of Unlocking Innovation. He's the medical director of quality innovation and clinical practice analysis, as well as an attending infectious disease physician at North Shore University Health System, named one of IBM Watson's 100 top hospitals, 21 times over. An expert in bringing innovation to the hands of clinicians, Dr. Shah's project spans artificial intelligence, digital health, wearables, personalized medicine, predictive analytics, and population health. He's returning to Unlocking Innovation today to discuss the technological innovations that have emerged from this very challenging year in healthcare. Well, we're extremely excited today. Uh, we have uh, a special guest who is not new to the podcast, but uh, certainly uh, someone who we're excited to have, uh, Dr. Narav Shah. Uh, first, welcome back.
1: Thank you, Adam. It, it's really great to be back on Unlocking Innovation. I um, I am a fan. Uh, it is so interesting to hear kind of that diverse perspectives in innovation. Uh, and innovation. Uh, and I mean, you moderated so well, so I, I'm uh, really happy to be back.
0: Awesome. And needless to say, a lot has changed in the healthcare industry since the last time we spoke. Uh, how are you holding up?
1: Yeah, I um, <laughs> agree. The in- landscape has changed since we last spoke and, um, you know, being an ID doc, it's, uh, I figured, um, provide some context and, uh, maybe, public a, a service announcements in between too. but, um, sure. I mean, we're in the fall wave of COVID and, um, it's resulted in a stay in Chicago. I mean, essentially, uh, you know, significant mitigations in Illinois and throughout kind of the U S uh, it's ubiquitous. You know, it's an urban rural uh, landscapes. Um, it's resulted in significant morbidity, mortality, 250,000 plus deaths up until now. And it's fundamentally changed how we live, socialize, shop, work, educate our children. My kids are all remote right now. Um, healthcare delivery has not been spared, you know, this disruption. Um, and, you know, to speak kind of more broadly to, you know, about healthcare providers, i think in general you know all healthcare providers doctors nurses you know even administrators you know therapists uh it's kind of a really tough time right now people are really struggling um i i literally was on a call today with our id section and one of our members that um used to be a hospitalist and hospitalists are essentially the uh, providers that take care of patients on hospital floors they're like the front lines you know of you know for physicians And he said most resilient hospitalists basically said that i'm completely burnt out um and it's just it's um you know it's in the news but it's very real and i think there's a lot of reasons why that's happening you know there's just the spike in the number of cases you know so the volumes are really high the acuity is really high patients are really sick um you know it's really hard to kind of uh, have like a release because what are you going to do when you you know your release is going home you know, and you can't really go out anywhere. So there isn't that kind of social release. And then, um, you know, the physical risk that you have, um, you know, by, you know, taking care of COVID patients to yourselves, your families. Um, and then the final thing is, I think this is a significant thing. And, um, uh, you know, it's essentially a moral injury, um, which is, you know, really, uh, you know, a lot of, dis- there's a lot of distress in the healthcare field, um, kind of about the messaging, um you know about the whole response and kind of the direction that it's gone in and you know we have like some of the best scientists and you know we're you know we're we're having a tough time with this in other countries that have um you know robust infrastructure you know kind of at uh you know the us's level they're you know kind of handling it you know differently and not having the same um the same depth you know so you know and for me i you know thank you for asking i i'm okay I um uh, you know, I, I, I personally spend only 20% of the time on the floor, so, you know, I it, it's not really, you know, everyone's like, you're an ID doc, oh, I mean, you're doing such stuff, and I'm like, you know, I really, you know, spent most of my time at home working on a computer, um, but, you know, my colleagues, um, you know, healthcare providers are really the heroes, um, and, but being an ID practitioner with a public health background, looking at kind of analytics there, I mean, there's a significant amount of, you know, moral injury um, that, you know, we kind of feel, um, so, you um, yeah. I mean, so that's, that's kind of how it is, but I, I you know, there's a, you know, I don't want to, you know, turn this into like, you know, uh, a negative podcast, but there's a lot to look forward to. You know, there's a lot of, you know, good news that's coming out. Uh, you know, the vaccine, you know, just in the past couple of weeks, the vaccines, um, you know, treatment. So, I mean, the vaccine in particular is absolutely amazing. Um, and, you know, I think there's a light at the end of the tunnel.
0: Thank you for sharing that. You know, it's, it's so interesting because we're we're in the midst of that the holiday season now, and it's, it's so many of the conversations I know that I've been having recently have 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 changed. And and it, I'm not sure if I mentioned this to you previously, but I had a, a an aunt and uncle that passed away from COVID earlier this year, Girl, I'm and sorry. It, it just hit immediately, and um, it, it was very very sudden. Um, and uh, I think it was in a matter of a, a week within entering the hospital. Um, but you know it's it's interesting because my family is on pins and needles, especially around Thanksgiving, yeah, uh, the other holiday scenarios, and it's it has flipped everybody's world um upside down, and I I know you have are, are deep in the numbers and the analytics and um the data behind this, uh, and I'm curious how how this has shifted your work or your viewpoint on the work that you're doing.
1: Yeah, I mean, this was an incredibly, uh, for all health systems, for all providers, this has been one of the most disrupt. I mean, for everybody in the world, I mean, this has been one of the most disruptive things. Um, and, uh, you know, initially uh, a lot of my work was, um, you know, not clinically based um, and it was more of this digital AI, Clinical decision support, um, wearables—you know, not focusing on obviously not focusing on COVID populations—all of that essentially came to a halt um, with COVID. And um, you know, with all my projects essentially coming to a halt because every every resource was devoted to fighting COVID and to restructuring the entire healthcare system to deliver care for this uh, massive um, you know number of patients that we we had in the in the spring. You know, I, I shifted gears with some of my work. Um, trying to find uh, things that I could do to kind of help out, um, you know, I didn't really have kind of a clearly defined, you know, I wasn't on the front lines helping out, you know, with COVID. But, you know, there were a couple of areas where I helped out um, and hopefully, you know, made some meaningful, uh, you know, changes and impact. Um, so some of the things, you know, we uh, we have a lot of clinical trials that have been essentially gone up. At the same time, you know, it, there's been, you know, we've never seen something like this before where you have thousands of clinical trials going up essentially at the same time for the exact same population. You know, in the spring, it was really on the hospitalized patients because we were desperate to find therapeutic that would work and that would change, you know, the, um, you know, blunt at least, you know, some of the effects of the pandemic. And so we, um, at North Shore, we had a bunch of clinical trials essentially go up all at the same time. And actually, uh, there's a bunch of research in general that went up for COVID. And so, uh, you know, I helped, you know, uh, with a you know a team kind of figure out what was the research intake process so that we could, you know, essentially prioritize all these things to, you know, what was the most impactful for patient care? What was the most impactful, uh, you know, from a research question standpoint, so building that um, HIT infrastructure with uh, my HIT colleagues. And then um, the clinical trials, getting back to that, you know, um, most clinical trials are really very siloed. I mean, you'll have like a diabetes clinical trial or like a vascular clinical trial or like an asthma or COPD and, you know, they're targeting different patient populations, but this was literally targeting the exact same patient population. So how, and there were so many other things that were so unique, you know, um, you know, we, there was a safety issue where we didn't want the clinical research coordinators to go into the room, especially early on when we, you know, we were just so terrified as to, you know, how this spreads and how, um, you know, the, uh, you know, there wasn't enough PPE and all of that, so, you know, so, so all these different changes to how this research infrastructure existed, and so we built out a tool that allowed for communication and organization around clinical trials, so that we weren't, you know, that we were passing information to the frontline physicians who were really communicating this, and so that we weren't telling the same patient about three clinical trials at the same time and confusing them. Um, you know, and so that it was a very kind of process way. Um, I helped out with a bunch of research and, um, you know, looking at therapeutic trials, some diagnostics and, um, you know, health equity uh, disparities type research. Um, and uh, I worked on some of the um, recovery related to some of the uh, modeling that The analytics team developed um so how do we 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 have a very robust data warehouse where we kind of house all our clinical data and a bunch of other data but one data system that wasn't housed in our edw was our supply chain and very early on it was very clear that everybody was having issues with supply chain in terms of masks and ppe and et cetera and so how do you link essentially the modeling that we were doing around COVID, like you know where, where we suspected the numbers would be a week, two weeks from now, to the actual PPE, and how does that impact our ability to conduct surgeries, our ability, you know, to see patients, you know, um, and that. So I was involved very early on in trying to think through some of those questions when, you know, there was, um, there were significant issues with PPE and stuff. So that's kind of the work I did. Um, Very quickly, um, you know, my boss basically said we should be able to, you know, uh, walk and chew gum at the same time and um, within a few months, I, you know, my projects kind of got back up and running. I've been working on that, but still, you know, doing some COVID stuff and, um, you know, um, continuing on with a lot of the projects I was working on from before.
0: So the last time we we conducted the interview, we were uh, in person in a small studio, confined space, which would absolutely be a no no today, considering the pandemic. Um, now we're we're meeting virtually. So many things about the pandemic have have, um, caused some some significant harm to people and communities in life. But there are some things that have have been a positive and one of which has been kind of this digital divide, uh, not just in rural areas, but um, really the the adoption of technology has been fast forwarded um, just by circumstances. One of the things that, that we know is that video is being used quite a bit more for uh, by healthcare systems and, and hospitals to, to reach patients. So I'm curious, how is North Shore bringing care into patients' homes uh, when it comes to digital tools and technology?
1: I think um, the bulk of it really is around telehealth. And, I mean, this is something that... Um, uh, that's occurring nationally. Uh, I mean, this is accelerated all digital kind of tools across all sectors everywhere. I'm sure even I mean you guys are very digitally enabled and enhanced, and I'm sure it's even accelerated what you guys are doing. Um, but for healthcare systems that were essentially archaic from a digital standpoint, it has accelerated it. You know, some people say by a decade. Uh, you know, um, you know the amount of uh, digital type tools that we're bringing you know into the home. Primarily, really telehealth, e-visits, and those kinds of things, because you know, especially initially, we wanted to keep patients safe. We want to keep providers safe, um, and try to minimize kind of the amount of in-person contact. Um, So that was the main thing. There, there have been a couple other things. You know, this has accelerated our journey in other spaces as well. Um, I would say remote monitoring has um, you know accelerated. So we're we're working on two kind of remote monitoring projects. One is kind of in its early stages and it's essentially doing that kind of telehealth visit, but, uh, you know, potentially bringing in tools that the patient can use at home to do the actual physical exam so that you don't need to, you know, when you have a telehealth visit and it's just on the phone and you don't have those tools to do the physical exam, it's kind of hard to, um, you know, to fully understand what's going on. But if you could have those tools at home and they could do the physical exam and you can record it into your system and you have that objective data, It's helpful. So we're, you know, we're looking into that space, uh, mainly from an urgent care and potentially, uh, you know, primary care kind of space. Um, My work in wearables has continued. It's, um, you know, it's been moving quite uh, rapidly. And we've um, partnered with the company called PhysIQ, which um, is actually a Chicago startup, which, you know, it's great to partner with Chicago startups. Um, and they're a company that's—it's an analytics company that, um, you know, is device agnostic. And so they—they they literally go whatever platforms exist. They, um, you know, connect with them, and they have a suite of analytics which were very interesting to me. You know, um, when we were kind of doing our vendor evaluation, because they've—they've um, they've had papers that show that they are able to identify patients at risk as good as like invasive tools. There's this thing called the like, CardioMEMS, which is really the only thing. For heart failure, which is really the you know one of the main um, areas that we're trying to reduce uh, readmission and monitor patients when they leave the hospital, and so there's this invasive device called the cardiomems that directly measures the pressure in the pulmonary artery, and so that is the only thing that's been shown to reduce readmission rates because it is such an objective measure that you know is so helpful and you can intervene early. you know, manage patients early. And so this company basically has um, produced a paper that shows that their external wearable device with their analytics um, can potentially um, identify patients at risk, you know, just as quickly as that. And so we are, uh, we have moved forward uh, with essentially a clinical trial, and we're going to be enrolling our first patient in the next two to three weeks um, for that. And it's been, you know, massive, (laughs) massive planning to kind of figure out kind of how to not only just take the device itself, um, which you know, there's the device in the analytics, but you know, there there are so many other components to technology that I'm sure you guys are aware of. There's you know the you know the human computer kind of design element. There's the workflow. There's the implementation. There's the change management. You know, there, there there's all these other pieces that you have to think through um, and that are just as you know innovative as the actual device and the you know the analytics. And so, so that you know that is something that we're working on. And then our larger team um, is working. Our digital team, um, you know, led by you know one of our VPs in digital, um, Sam Abargudi. He's working on um, he's working on our digital front door. So how do you know aside from just the phone and our you know North Shore Connect, our patient portal? Um, um, how does how does um, North Shore patients actually connect with us in a digitally enhanced way? so that they can, you know, perform a lot of functions that they normally perform by calling someone and, you know, like scheduling and this, and you know, there's a whole host of different uh, applications that you can build into a, that platform. So COVID has really accelerated that too. So everything has basically been accelerated, but we're still, you know, resource limited based on the fact that everything is really being devoted to fight kind of COVID.
0: It's exciting news, and especially moving forward with a lot of these, these initiatives that Maybe you know we're we're slow to get to the market, or, or maybe put on the back burner a little bit, but just had to get fast forward uh, again by the circumstances. So that's that's uh, that's great news there. So we talked about last year some of the uh, early adoption of predictive analytics. Um, some of those concepts you mentioned uh, a little bit earlier. Uh, are being used to combat some of the ongoing pandemic. Can you elaborate a little bit more on on some of the ways that predictive analytics are being leveraged?
1: Yeah, I mean, so there, there's a very large team that's working on predictive analytics. We have our um, AVP of clinical analytics, um, and his team includes kind of our data science team, and our senior data scientist is really kind of spearheading um, the prediction aspect of, you know, what we're doing. And, um, so basically it's this, it's a model, a uh, common epidemiolo- epidemiologic model called SIR model that we're using that a whole host of other organizations are using, which really predicts kind of where the epidemic is going. And so we're leveraging that essentially to determine, um, what is the, you know, what's the census going to be in the hospital one week down the road, two weeks down the road, and that type of planning, you know, because things will move, move so fast that literally uh, one week to the next, you, you have no idea what's going to happen. I mean, like our we used to schedule our uh, we used to have our schedules mapped out for like six months and literally week to week. We just don't know where we're going to be because, you know, this pandemic could just, you know, potentially change so quickly, you know, because um, essentially there are periods. And right now is a good example where the doubling time is essentially every week. So. You know, you, you have 30 patients in the hospital three weeks ago. You're already over 100. You're getting close to 200 by now, it just from one disease process, and it completely alters the dynamics of your entire healthcare system. And so, what these models have been able uh, have allowed us to do is it's given us a little cushion, a little window into figuring out exactly what we need to do to plan. And I mean, there's significant things that we need to plan in terms of personnel. You know, in terms of do we need to activate kind of a work pool to help on the inpatient side if they're get if they're you know if they're getting completely overburdened and stressed you know do we need to call in outpatient docs to come in and help the inpatient docs do we need to shut down some of the outpatient services do we need to think about um, delaying some of the elective surgeries you know that we kind of stopped you know nationally essentially um, you know in the spring you know do we need to delay that what's the level at which we can delay or uh, what's the number percentage of um, those types of surgeries that we can you know cut back on? So having that kind of predictive analytics tool really helps overall you know the whole functioning kind of 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 the system. I mean obviously there's limitations to any kind of predictive analytics. You know you know these models are built based on kind of where is the pandemic? Where is it? You know where has it been? But it really can't take into account any kind of mitigation efforts or anything like that. So w- what we find is, you know, there's mitigation efforts it completely changes everything. And you know, we predict that, you know, oh my gosh, our entire healthcare system is going to be swamped in three weeks. You know, but with mitigation efforts, you know, you see that kind of that number come down as that, as that happens. Just um, piggybacking off of that. Um, so that was predictive analytics. There's you know a whole host of other types of analytics that we're you know leveraging to think about this problem. And one of them is a tool called What's Going Around. It's actually available um, uh, on the, you know, any app store. Um, and it's a tool that we built in-house, uh, one of my mentors. Um, and then also, um, you know I, I mentioned the AVP of um, clinical analytics and their team and our web team as well. Um, it's called What's Going Around. And it's basically, it's a syndromic surveillance tool, visual analytics of the North Shore catchment area. And it does a whole host of things. So I mean, when we built it a bunch of years back, it did influenza-like illness, uh, whooping cough, uh, pediatric asthma, gastroenteritis. But we've added COVID to the mix in that. So what's really interesting is, you know, you see those maps on like, I don't know, New York Times or wherever, and you kind of see these areas that are shaded, and some are shaded really dark, and some are shaded really light. But this this tool gives you insight into what you know, hyper-local communities are being affected. And so, you know, we quickly implemented this for COVID. And what we found is there were certain communities where there were like hotspots lighting up. And we literally, um, our system has gone to those communities and talked with local leaders to try to figure out what's going on and how can we mitigate it at that kind of local level. So in addition to predictive analytics, there's other analytics that, you know, we're doing that are really helping us kind of target, you know, where the COVID hotspots are at the extreme hyperlocal level.
0: That's fascinating. And I'm, I'm curious is if there's been any surprises or interesting correlations that have been made from those data sets that, that have come out of that tool.
1: I mean, we, we have seen, I mean, our physicians are of the community, and our community is uh, very diverse. Um, and so there have been cases of physicians knowing exactly, you know, uh, you know, where we know there's a certain community and, you know, we talk to physicians of that same community and they know exactly kind of what's going on. And so we've been able to, you know, target those specific events, super spreading type events, you know, based on that. So I, I, I mean, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, you know, to be able to take the data that's being churned, you know, from our, you know, our our, you know, daily clinics and, you know, lab tests and, you know, going into our EDW and then going into this tool and then being able to figure out at the local level, like what is going on that's driving this, you know, what event occurred that, you know, is driving this is extremely fascinating.
0: So one of the things that we know on, on the digital innovation side um, is really around the, the, the waves of COVID-19 and kind of tracking those pieces and you you spoke to a couple of the scenarios what contribution do users and users need to to be mindful or um need to think through in terms of contributing to some of those numbers is there something that they should be proactively doing you know whether it's you know um, indicating in an app that 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 they're experiencing certain symptoms, or is it just data read-only?
1: It's an interesting question. Um, there are, you know, if I think about it, there are a bunch of um, applications that exist to enter in patient-reported outcomes. You know, the most notable—I mean, when I go on Facebook, I see that Carnegie Mellon is doing some kind of study, and you can enter in some data. Um, We're involved um, with a a commons, a data sharing kind of commons, where um, uh, there is some degree of kind of capturing some mobile type data. Um, You know, any kind of data that helps us understand kind of the spread um, and the hotspots is helpful in kind of mitigation efforts. So obviously, the more data, uh, the better to help us figure out what's going on but I'm sure there is specific kind of data elements that are really helpful. Um, You you know, as uh, you probably heard kind of early on, there were a lot of initiatives, big initiatives between, you know, the big tech companies to see if they could do contact tracing, um, you know, between phones. Obviously there's significant privacy issues. You know, we're not um, South Korea, which can do something like this and can do it effectively and can, you know, pinpoint exactly what's going on and, you know, uh, and they have a different um, culture, you know, in terms of, Uh, You know, if you've come in contact, quarantining is a lot easier kind of in in that culture compared to the U.S. But I mean, something like that, um, you know, if we had devoted um, energy and um, effort, um, uh, you know, into really thinking about the, you know, test and trace and, you know, that kind of philosophy, I think would have, you know, been very helpful kind of early on, you know, when it wasn't as widespread. Um, so, I, I mean, I think that kind of data would have been really helpful at the kind of consumer level if something like that could have been passed on. Um, I, You know, I, I think that's that's probably where I, I think the most impactful kind of consumer-generated data would have been.
0: Absolutely, and I, I instantly think of social media tools like Twitter that, where people are, you know, sharing different, you know, life events and things that are going on. But that I'm sure have been useful in terms of. Um, contact tracing and kind of mapping where super spreader events have started, et cetera, because usually those are, uh, are shared through social media. Yeah. So in the area of digital innovation, in terms of technology advancements, you'd like to see that maybe haven't been adopted yet by uh, the healthcare system or um, at, at large or specifically with North Shore. Is there any digital innovations that you're excited about that you haven't seen yet but you think would be very beneficial?
1: So it's an interesting question, and actually, um, you sparked something uh, in me to to think this through. I mean, uh, one of the big things is we need to be able to kind of automate a lot of the burden on care providers because um, you know over time there's been a lot of regulatory type burden, um, you know data entry type burden you know the number of orders the the number of like clinical guidelines has increased and it keeps changing and i i think as a healthcare system we need to think more about automation i think that's one of the um key things that will allow us to essentially go back to where we were in healthcare um i don't know however many years back when it was literally the conversation between you know the patient and the provider now it's really it's literally you know i need to do all these different alert you know i have to meet all these care gaps i need to i need to make sure that they're up to date on this and this and i need to go through all of this information that's you know there but a lot of that is in the electronic health record and how do we leverage that electronic health record to really ease the process for clinicians you know not just physicians but nurses therapists you know etc you know even administrators but then something else you, uh, that clicked is, you know, all the projects that I'm working on are essentially, you know, if you think about it, kind of going into the future are probably all interlinked, you know, whether it's, um, you know, a digital front door, whether it's um, extracting social determinants of health, which is another project that we're working on right now from, from notes, whether it's, um, you know, remote monitoring, whether, you know, it's building these like complex. Um, decision support tools that allow you to automate processes, if you think about it, they're all connected at some point in the future. So there's going to be some kind of, uh, you know, process that can, you know, rule them all that allows you, you know, a single, you know, instance, maybe that connects all the dots. And that kind of connection of all the dots, all these disparate kind of applications um, and technologies, I think that that is that is going to be the secret sauce kind of going forward. You know and um, holding everything together in a way you know that has that um, computer human kind of design element you know from the front end for the clinician but then also for the patient you know so that they can engage with the system the you know the physician can engage with the system you automate a lot of the processes you automate a lot of the data capture so the data capture is done you know not in burdensome ways but in ways that are um, easy um, that don't um, cause disparities, you know, that don't propagate disparities. That, um, you know, I, so I I think that glue, that kind of holds everything together, that is kind of the uh, the end goal.
0: I love that, and I think it's such an important topic. I know we've we've hit on it several times in the podcast, but that automation piece, you know, as we all get more sophisticated with uh, technology and more data we gather, the more upkeep that data requires. And in some cases, you know, some of that burden falls on uh, a lot of data admin work that, that has to to take place. So that automation piece is huge. And, and quite frankly, you know, I think, is it fair to say, I mean, when I look at North shore, sure. I obviously grew up in, in, in Chicagoland area. So I'm very familiar with the healthcare system and, and have an affinity for it. Um, I've had family members that have worked within it, but there's a a level of sophistication that I've seen from North shore that might not, um, exist in, especially in different towns and in different States. And when I think about the the burden that they have, especially in a scenario with, with the pandemic where they're extremely overwhelmed, I can only imagine how, how much the fact that admin work has exacerbated, um, all of the, uh, the stress level they already have on the, on their day-to-day. So in in light of recent, recent events, how do you see the data and predictive analytics addressing some of the disparities in in the future in terms of healthcare? You
1: know, this is a very, very interesting question. Um, and it is so timely. Um, you, you know, I, what's interesting is this is top of mind for, uh, clinicians um kind of uh, i think nationwide right now uh you know with the killing of george floyd the coronavirus disparities in terms of death uh you know i was listening to npr today and in illinois the uh rate of deaths for african americans is double that for caucasians just came out today um and we i mean there's so much data showing that black and brown populations are bearing the brunt kind of of this pandemic what i thought was really interesting is i i just participated in this um, conference, it's the American Medical Informatics Association Conference. So it's a lot of the researchers, like the real cutting edge kind of um, futuristic technology. Um, so like the informatics, the analytics, um, you know, that that kind of space, the digital, the keynote speaker um, was not an informatician, you know, or someone that they normally pick. Um, it was um, the sociologist by the name of Ruha Benjamin. I, have you have you heard of her? I have not. Oh my gosh, you should definitely look her up because I think it's so her work is so fascinating. She is a sociologist. She is at the interface of technology and structural racism. I mean, she had a very powerful message and the message is that healthcare systems there is you know, it's not just, you know, in society, you know, we're not immune as healthcare providers. Um there is structural racism that's built into um even the healthcare delivery. Um and we, I mean, we have to be very cognizant of this and we have to think this through, whether it's predictive analytics or, you know, what what have you. There, there was a um, journal article that looked at uh, one of the propri- proprietary models um, that was built by Optum Health. Um, it was in the news, it was pretty big. Um, and what Optum did was it built a model that determined essentially which patient's are more at risk for, um, you know, uh, complications or, you know, bad outcomes and stuff like that, so that you can devote care management or case management resources to high-risk patient populations. And, you know, they took a um, race, ethnicity, um, uh, uh, agnostic type of look at this, you know, they didn't include those variables in it, so that, you know, potentially it didn't confound kind of, you know, the you know, the, the model itself. But what they did do is they included, you know, cost of care as kind of, uh, you know, as the, I mean, that was essentially the outcome, the cost of care. And so what happened is the, there were some researchers who looked at essentially this black box and they were able to, you know, reverse engineer and figure out what was going on. And they found that African-Americans for the same cost of care were sicker than Caucasians. And it's, it's tied to essentially the structural racism that exists where African Americans just do not use the same amount of resources based on the the degree of severity of their you know their medical conditions. So what this was doing is this was this was basically this model without you know it was a benignly designed model, but it was taking in the structural racism around cost of care and it was propagating that by um, essentially like the care resources were being heavily focused on, on um, Caucasians who were less sick African Americans at you know at a given kind of severity of illness kind of uh, level, which I, you know is it, something that is kind of going around the predictive analytics world. Or you know there's a lot of papers that are thinking about like you know how do we um, how do we build models that not only propagate that um, that structural racism, or that identify that there is structural racism and that we need to counter it, but how do we do it so that we can improve these models. And basically impact justice, you know, like uh, not only health equity, but justice for communities that, um, you know, that potentially need more help, as opposed to giving them less help. You know, data garbage in, garbage out. Structural racism in, structural racism out. But how do we flip that model so that we really um, impact communities that need additional support? So, I, you know, at North Shore, this is something, you know, with everything that's gone on with the pandemic, we've taken. A much more deliberate approach, and I think healthcare providers in general nationally are taking a much more deliberate approach on this. And you know, I read there was a group of medical students somewhere that essentially didn't take uh, the Hippocratic oath. And what the medical students did is they designed their own Hippocratic oath, where really the focus was on health equity and justice. You know, um, which is so unique because that is such an important thing. And so our, our health system has taken a very deliberate approach to thinking about that um, because we're seeing not only, you know, in statewide and nationally, we're seeing this, but we're seeing this, you know, at our local catchment area level that there, these disparities exist. And so there, there are a couple of things that we're doing, you know, from a predictive analytics standpoint, we had, a, a, you know, we we run this journal club. And so we had multiple journal clubs kind of looking at this and we were like, we need to go back and our models that are based on, you know, kind of risk, we need to evaluate them for disparities. And there's a bunch of papers that exist that kind of tell you stepwise, you know, and actually you've seen um, some, uh, you know, colleagues at UFC, they were kind of um, spearheading some of these, um, you know, these papers. How do you um, evaluate risk um, in the context of, um, you know, social disparities and all of that? And so there's kind of some guidelines that you can do and it, it, it's, the interesting thing is it's not looking at risk. When you think about it, you don't look at this from a race or ethnicity agnostic view. You actually have to, you have to put it front and center. It has to be, as you take the data in, you got to think about that, right? Because there's probably issues at the data level. As you build a models, you got to think about it. You know, what variables you include, what types of, you know, the modeling techniques that you employ. And then even post development it has to be part of the monitoring phase so we built some models before and so we went back and we analyzed to see was there any disparities in outcomes related to the models and you know the models that we had were pri- primarily like inpatient you know really like high risk like you know readmission and mortality so the, a lot of the variables around kind of conditions and labs and stuff like that. So, we, you know, we didn't see anything, but we're now building outpatient models where our variable list is expanded, you know, at like what's the risk of admission? What's the risk of ER visit? And we're including all kinds of variables, including like social determinants, census tract variables, and, you know, all these other things where there's a potential for bias. And so we're thinking very carefully as we build these models as to how to not you know think about this from a race agnostic you know like a you know way but you know injecting it into all the stages to think about how do we make sure that we don't exacerbate the disparities that exist. The the other thing is um we we built on the in the mold of what's going around which is our you know epidemiologic visual analytics tool um, our analytics team built up something called the lens of social equity which is a similar geographic kind of mapping tool you know, down to the same kind of, you know, uh, you know, the really hyperlocal level of, you know, what are the health disparities that exist, you know, tied to various outcomes of interest. And what we noticed, we, you know, we, our teams um, looked at three um, things in particular, uh, mammography rates, um, colorectal cancer screening rates, hemoglobin A1c. And I think for one of these outcomes, I think it was the colorectal cancer screening rates. When we mapped this out based on medium income, when you look at kind of the highest, I think it was like the highest quartile to the lowest quartile, um, when you compare them, there was a disparities of about 8% in terms of colorectal cancer screening rates. And so this is something that, um, you know, was kind of uh, eye-opening. And um, and a whole health equities group, you know, committee got stood up. um, And it's being led by, you know, our, uh, essentially our, you know, top leadership um, to try to figure out how do we close these gaps. And then One other project, you know, that's kind of come as a result of this is we have an internal grant that just got funded um, looking at artificial intelligence and our focus in our initial grant was really natural language processing. And so we've we've looked at, you know, there's three use cases in this. And one of the use cases is really taking out the social determinants of health, you know, so food security, um, kind of income, jobs, uh, housing security, you know, um, behavioral issues such as social isolation, um, you know, violence, et cetera. And how do we extract that knowledge from our clinical notes? You know, we, we have access to a ton of information, but most of our information is um, buried in these clinical notes. And it's very hard to extract that out. You know, we do have quite a lot of information that's in discrete fields, you know, like a yes, no, it's in a you know specific, almost like an Excel spreadsheet, you know, which we call flow sheets. But most of our data is really captured in those notes. And it's really hard to extract that, especially around the social determinants. So that's one of the projects that we're looking at to see if we can extract that information and turn it into some kind of point of care type of um, knowledge that clinicians can use. And, you know, not only point of care, but population wise, can we use this to deploy this on our patient populations to really impact the disparities?
0: All I have to say is, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, as I'm listening to you, I'm just thinking how meaningful that work must be. And, you know, when I, traditionally when you think of Healthcare, you think of science, and you know, although empathy is a, a big part of patient care, it's not typically something that's that's led with, right? It's usually led with science, and it, it just feels refreshing and new, and it feels exciting because it, it, it takes more of a, an empathetic lens initially, kind of on the upfront up side of things, to uh, to solving some of these major Healthcare issues, and in some cases, uh, crises, really. Um, so the, this is fascinating work, and I'm I'm, I'm extremely excited that uh, that you are, are are engaged in it because it uh, sounds like it's extremely impactful and will have a, a a long tail. So,
1: I mean, it, I I completely agree. I mean, the, it, you know the this all got started, you know, with everything that's going on, you know, contextually what's going on, kind of you know in the U.S and our our system at the highest level basically said, "We need to address this because um you know it 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 affects everybody you know this is not just you know um looking at this in terms of um you know this community versus that community this affects everyone, this affects our north Shore community um so you know there has been a concerted effort to even look internally and think about this um you know about disparities um and kind of uh racial justice equity et cetera and you know, it it you know thinking about this, there's an empathetic lens as, and you know thinking about it from a data standpoint, there's also a data driven reason to drive this. You know, because you know that there's potential for a large impact if you know if there's a significant disparities, you know between different communities, there's a potential for a large impact that you can make if you just raise you know the disparities, you know if you raise one group up to you know what the other group Has in terms of colorectal cancer screening or what what have you, you there's a potentially extremely large impact kind of at the population level for population health. So there there, there's multiple ways to think about this, and I mean I think all health systems really need to think about this from both of those lenses. You know it it is it is uh, an empathetic view is definitely the way that we need to think about this, and you know really as we start moving into population health. I mean, this is the way that we have to move, you know, in general. This is the way that we are going to take care of our populations. If we really kind of bring um, everyone, we try to harmonize everything and bring justice to, you know, um, communities.
0: So we talked about, you know, some of the work on the predictive analytics side. We've talked about technology and certainly the impacts of COVID. Um, There's a lot of technological advances, even outside of um, solving some of the challenges with COVID. Um, what are you most excited about?
1: I am going to take a infectious disease unique view. Um, the vaccine data that just came out. And so this is not in the digital space. This is in the genomic space, which I guess is, you know, technology. The vaccine data that came out was absolutely stunning. Um, it normally takes... 10 years to to kind of design, develop um, and test out a vaccine. Imagine going through what we're going through and waiting 10 years for a vaccine to come out. That could get you that kind of herd immunity, you know, that in, in a vaccine standpoint. And now think about kind of the amount of technological progress it takes to take something where we didn't even know this existed one year ago, to now we already have vaccines that are uh, comparable to the best vaccines that are available. Um, so measles, I think is around 95%. You know, Obviously we still have to look at what the underlying data shows, but I mean, this is an independent body that is you know, saying that this is about 95% act, uh, you know, effective. And so to do that in one year from not knowing what this disease is to having something that potentially is 95% effective I think is probably one of the most meaningful technological advances of this year. Um, you know, especially with everything that's going on. the The news when it came out that this vaccine was 95 percent effective, and you know, I'm thinking about this from a stock market standpoint, altered the trajectory of the stock market. Entire sectors of the economy completely changed. You know, people are literally looking at the stock at, at the um, at this data, you know, as to you know where when am I going to be able to plan my next vacation you know I mean it, it, it touches everything this one this one thing and it's it's really uh, you know uh, because of genomics and where we are and this type of technology you know this is the first time that they're using this technology where they sequence the um, the genome of the virus you know they identify what is the what is the best target that we can use that will generate this antibody response and then how do we create kind of synthetic rna type vaccines that we so you know normally we take a piece of the um the virus and we inject it into someone we hope that it works right you know and you know usually it doesn't work or usually there's some safety issues um and you know with trial and error eventually we get it to work right you know after years and years and years and they literally they they looked at the genome this they determined protein was the protein to target after that one protein and to go from there to then you know we obviously we were able to do the clinical trial incredibly fast because there's such high rates of covid and so we were able to collect data of you know who captured you know who had covid and who didn't have covid and to do this like this fast i mean the infectious disease community is i think completely stunned at what the data showed that 95% effectiveness um and you know because we were shooting for 50% and you know this is like you know, you're shooting for, I don't know, like a six minute mile and you go to like to three minute mile, you know, it's something right. like that. I mean, it's absolutely crazy. And, um, you know, so I, I, as a public service announcement, I, I want to say, you know, there's a lot of misinformation about the vaccine. There's a lot of, you um, know, I'm not sure if this vaccine is good. I'm not sure if it's safe. The data so far has shown that these vaccines that are coming out soon are safe and extremely effective. And, you know, we need to, you know, as an ID doc, I, 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 you know, I need to say that this is something that we need to do. We need to take this vaccine. It's really important. There's a lot of misinformation out there is so we need to get vaccinated. And, I, you know, while we wait for that, you know, there's going to be a, uh, you know, a period of months or so wearing a mask is probably the, you know, that that's the best thing you can do. So wear a mask, get vaccinated. That's where I, you know, that's where I like, you know, um, that that's the technological achievement, I think of the, of the year.
0: I love it. So we'll, we'll, we'll end it with one last question. That's a little bit more, uh, light, lighthearted here. Um, during the pandemic, obviously everybody's been either quarantined or in in a position where they, they can't, uh, move far away from the house. Um, any particular binge watching, uh, uh, show that you've gotten into, or if not TV, any books or uh, podcasts outside of unlocking innovation that you've really enjoyed?
1: Unlocking Innovation is fantastic. Um, I uh, occasionally get into TV shows. I would say right now, the top TV show that I, I wait for is The Mandalorian. Uh, I, I love Star Wars. Uh, I've seen, I think, essentially everything in Star Wars. Um, and so sometimes I get my five-year-old and three-year-old to watch Star Wars and they're obsessed with Baby Yoda. So <laughs> I, I think uh, that would be my current, uh, my current kind of binge watching.
0: I love it. Good stuff. Well, this was absolutely exciting. It's always a pleasure uh catching up and, and seeing all the, the great work that you're doing. So uh we wanna thank you, uh, not just for your time, but all of the hard work and dedication to um taking care of such a large population of people that uh have healthcare needs. So thank you for all your work and thank thank you for everything that you do and thank you for joining us today. We know your schedule's busy. So
1: thank you. I mean, this is fantastic and I'd just like to say that um This is a large team effort at North Shore, and there are a lot of people that are heroes um, that deserve recognition, kind of in that—not just in the healthcare space, but you know, the frontline workers that really deserve recognition.
0: Absolutely. Well, we hope you have a a safe and wonderful holiday season, and uh, look forward to talking soon. Thanks, Adam. Remember to subscribe to Unlocking Innovation wherever you listen to podcasts and be sure to rate and review. To stay up to date with EX3 Labs news and events, follow us on social media. We're at EX3 Labs. See you next time.